Hi, I'm Jim. And I'm David. And this is the Practical Guitarist Podcast. The podcast for people who eat, sleep, and breathe guitar. The Practical Guitarist Podcast is brought to you by Great Lakes Guitar Pickups. Great Lakes Guitar Pickups provides fantasy tones at prices a practical guitarist will love. Featuring top-notch construction, attention to detail, and a fully custom product, if you can dream it, Great Lakes Guitar Pickups can probably build it. Follow them on Facebook at facebook.com slash Pickups. Are you a regular listener? Why not? David here reminding you of all the ways you can participate in the Practical Guitarist Podcast. Subscribe using your chosen podcast app. Review us on iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, or Google Play. Find our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash practical guitarist or on Twitter as at practguitarist. Support the show. Merchandise is available in our Threadless store at practicalguitaristpodcast.threadless.com and donate to us via Patreon available at patreon.com slash practicalguitarist. Reach out to us directly via email at questions at practicalguitarist.com. Good afternoon, Jim. Well, good evening, David. Good evening, whatever. It's 8.30. Gosh, we were supposed to start at 8 o'clock. I know. Um, we had some technical difficulties. 8.39, yeah. We had 10 minutes of technical difficulties, 20 minutes of discussion. Uh, 10 Which could have been part of the show. 10 minutes of me literally scrolling through somebody's Facebook Messenger posts. And uh, then, uh, and then like, yeah, so now here we are. Um, yeah, he had to stop because Mandy walked in behind him. I gotta be, I gotta be honest. <laughs> I'm pretty fired up coming in. I didn't bring it up, but I'm, I'm coming in fired up this episode because, <laughs> like, um, I've been hearing a lot of people talking about coronavirus right now, and like, oh, yeah. like, so everybody's talking about you know the protesters and all this stuff that's going on, and whether you whether whether you agree or you align with the protesters or not, it's not really all that relevant to me. I mean, I do have my opinions on it. We could talk right. about that outside the show as much as we want, but that's not something for this show. But the whole point is like whether that is the case or not, like whether it's justified or not, we're all in the same damn boat. Right. So I mean, right. I don't think I don't think the powers that be so if there is if you if you're the conspiracy theorist and you believe in a new world order, do you really think going out and protesting is going to accomplish anything? I mean I mean, you know what you're up against, right? Uh, I, I, my whole thing with the New World Order is like, there's much better ways to accomplish what they're doing, and they were doing a fine job before, <laughs> before <laughs> COVID-19 showed up. So yeah. I don't know. I mean, they just take that with a grain of salt. Um, anyway, uh, if you you know believe in those conspiracy theories and that kind of thing, I, I find myself kind of laughing off the Illuminati stuff quite a bit. Um, but anyway, so... Uh, we got a lot to talk about this episode. Um, we're, uh, the first <laughs> item on my agenda for this evening is uh, talking about developing, developing my hunt for the perfect electric guitar. Yeah. Um, which that that that's kind of a tongue in cheek joke because everybody knows I'm always on the hunt for the perfect electric guitar. You guys have heard me talk about it on the show enough, and we're not going to wax poetic about this all night or anything. Uh, after all, this is not just a gu- guitar your podcast we talk about guitar too um and what's happened over the last couple of weeks so i had a ugly run-in with a for my over in the kiesel owners group that basically led to me just saying um f this i'm out 
And uh, it wasn't really like it wasn't a rage quit scenario so much as it was like, this is why you are a horrible human being. And then like some people chimed in to defend him. And I was like, nah, I ain't doing this. Like, I'm not even gonna, I'm not even going to do this. Like, this is ridiculous. Because to, to explain the situation, basically, like there was something that happened. This customer got something he didn't expect to get, whether that was something that they ordered that way or whatever. They showed the receipt and it was the case. This person was not the one that was creating all the fuss. It was their buddy that came into the group three days after it had happened and was all over like the uh, the live streams and everything, just like saying, when are they going to do something about this situation and like dragging him through the mud and yeah. uh, basically harassing the company. Any other, in any other situation, that would be considered harassment, okay? And so everybody's kind of sitting there thinking this guy's behavior is okay. And I'm going, dude, this is harassment. And when, I, and when I brought up like, hey, maybe you're not handling this the right way, he blew up on me. And uh, everybody else blew up on me. And I'm like, you know what? I don't have time for this. So I left. Um, and honestly, like – I'm kind of disgusted with the Kiesel owners to the point where I don't want to buy another Kiesel because I don't want to be identified with those people. If anyone at all is familiar with the way that those people behave, like that's going to reflect poorly upon me. And I don't like it. I think that's, I think it's ridiculous. I try to be an ambassador for the instrument and right. uh, I will continue to be that way. So, you know, whatever it is. So anyway, what happened now is like, I'm like, well, I can't really get a seven string that I like from somebody else. I mean, I could buy a Strandberg, maybe. I got to get my hands on one before I would make any sort of adjudication on that. But, like, the whole thing is I, I, I'm I, kind of, like, feeling the pinch of there aren't enough seven-string guitars to go around. And so now I'm kind of look, looking at other things. And this is going to sound really, really ridiculous, but I sold my Gibson SG back in the fall, um, and I got, I got more than I paid for it. Um, so I can't really complain from that perspective. But um, I, I'm i kind of sitting here going, I shouldn't have sold that guitar because now I'm kind of wishing I still had it. Yeah. I'm like, well, you know, I wasn't playing it at the time, but um, I'm I'm thinking I'm going to switch up some of my arrangements. I might I might tune down to D instead or something and try to try to make it all work. And I don't really have the guitars that I wanted at that time. Um, so I'm kind of like chasing my tail a little bit. So that's what I'm saying, like, we're developing the perfect hunt. So I got a couple things on on the radar. I'm looking at SGs, 61 SGs, the the new like the new one. Yeah. I'm looking at some of the older ones too. Um yeah. I'm looking at Gretches. Uh if I go Gretch, I could come out well under $1000 with a quality guitar and not feel disappointed. Um which is odd because I know that Gretch's good stuff starts way more than that, like their top line. Um which I would probably go and play one, but um, I, so Gretsch is on the page, Gibson's on the page, um, and Gibson, not just the SG, like the SG, Les Pauls, probably Flying V's, all kinds of stuff like that. Um, and then uh, I'm just kind of like looking at similar stuff in that vein, and actually Go, Godin, uh, Godin is still, Godin, still on the uh, list for that too. Because uh, I got that P90 equipped guitar. If you guys saw my live stream in the Facebook group this week, uh, I think that guitar kind of speaks for itself. Um, one thing I've heard that actually may help that guitar a lot is to uh, going from 250k pots to 500k pots because mm -hmm. it has a P90 in it. And a lot of people were saying it felt pretty choked. 
and when they when they put the 500k pots in there they got a lot more high end and a lot more um clarity out of those pickups um it, it does have the seymour duncans in it and the crazy thing is these guitars were not they were popular like a lot of people bought them and they're you can't find them on reverb now so mm. i don't know whether they're getting hoarded and i have seen several people talking about you know this guitar basically knocked my high-end Gibson out of my lineup um, for like a $500 guitar. It's just psychotic. Um, I can attest though, that everything I've ever played from uh, Godain has been, been a pretty good instrument. Um, this one's got some dead spots, but I think it's due to fretware. But uh, so that's what's happening. We're developing a hunt for the perfect electric guitar. <laughs> I'm trying to figure out like the right way to go about this. And because we're in the middle of COVID-19, like I can't go to a store and play any. <laughs> so I have to just kind of like look at pictures online and dream um, and ask people who know things. <laughs> yep. That's basically what I'm doing right now. I will not buy a guitar. One of these guitars probably sight unseen, um, mostly because I want to get my hands on it. Um, but that being said, like if I was to buy from like somebody like Sweetwater or Guitar Center who does for some of the really high end stuff, um, where they post pictures of the actual instrument and maybe, uh, you know, the weight and that kind of thing, I might consider that, but, um, it's going to be a long, going to be a long process. I don't think I'm going to be walking out with a guitar anytime soon. So, um, far as, uh, everything else goes, we got some interesting topics for y'all tonight, but. Uh, I wanted to start off. I want to do housekeeping and, and then I'll let Jim take the floor for a little bit. Uh, Cause he's sitting over there and he's, he's got this really sad look in his eye right now. He's like, I got this fancy new computer and I can't even talk. I can't because, because David just keeps cutting me off and doing all these awful things. This is not my show folks. That's the funny part about this. Jim approached me. <laughs> so I I'm, I'm bearing the mantle of me being an awful person in, and usurping his power. Um, so housekeeping. Uh, yeah, this is a podcast. It costs money to do. Uh, it doesn't cost us a whole lot of money, but it does cost money. If you'd like to uh, donate and contribute to the cause, um, we have Patreon. Uh, Patreon.com slash Practical Guitarist, I believe. And then we yep. ha I don't have my notes sitting in front of me for this, so I bear with me. Um, you can find all this information uh, sometimes in our announcements on our Facebook page. Yeah, um, oh, even we can't find it right now. Yeah, that, uh, for whatever reason, it says there's seven announcements. I can only see three. Um, so I'm going to have to figure that one out. Uh, so there's Patreon. There is uh, Threadless. We have a Threadless store. I believe it's threadless.com slash Practical Guitarist as well. It might be Practical Guitarist Podcast. Uh, and then, uh, you can buy, you know, t-shirts, that kind of thing in there, mugs, uh, fun stuff. And then, uh, we also have, uh, uh, our Amazon affiliate link, which is also in the announcements on our Facebook page. God, wish, I, I wish I could find it because I bought a whole bunch of crap at Amazon. Anyway, so, um, one of the things to let people know, that, um, you know, as far as the, the channel goes, um, we, we as a channel, we do stuff. Um, I kind of took this one on myself, but um, if you guys want to help, that's fine. Uh, what I did was um, a, another uh, another podcast channel. Um, well, they're, they're a YouTube channel, but um, RNA Music, which is Low Mom and Pop Shop. Um, if anybody listens to them, they're the Little Mom and Pop Shop in Central Texas. I'm and, pretty uh, sure they have a prof they have a uh, fairly active YouTube channel. 
They do. And um, they run a mom and pop guitar shop. Um, and, the, you know, I'm sure that the YouTube channel helps them out a little bit, paying some of the bills. And um, anyway, a lot of the they do a lot of outreach stuff. Um, Brian and Angela are very, um, very much into, you know, helping children. And um, so they reached out on their uh, YouTube channel and said, if anybody wants to uh, help someone continue their lessons, uh, get a hold of them. I got a hold of Ryan, who has agreed to be on the show. Ryan and Angela are going to be on the show, by the way. Awesome. Um, in the future. So i um, trying to set that up with them. We got so many guests and, coming. Yeah. And uh, so what I did was I personally shelled out the money. I'm not going to say how much it was. Let's just say that it was what you would you would expect for a month's lessons. And I paid for a child to continue their lessons during this uh, time when a parent awesome. afford to do it. So, so awesome. Uh, yeah, Jim, that's great to hear. I wish we had enough money in the uh, podcast coffers so that I could, uh, I could do that nah, with, pod- a- with the podcast money. Um, yeah. but, uh, but, yeah, but the thing is folks, if you want to help, um, us to do stuff like that, this is the, you know, David is, is similar to me. He does a lot of things that, um, you know, when it comes to helping other people out. Um, and sometimes it sounds like he, <laughs> Like the little exchange he had in the in the um, Diesel forum, sometimes it sounds like that, but that's not David. And if if it was, I wouldn't. Uh, I no, wouldn't I have to. Yeah, no, that's that, that's absolutely me. The problem is, I know <laughs> I have to offset my jerk credentials with doing nice things every once in a while. So that's how it works. <laughs> and so, yeah, if that was all that, that somebody was, I don't think uh, I could hang around for three years. Um, but uh, you know, the the thing is that. Uh, you know, we're we're a podcast of um, of positivity, and RNA is about positivity. And uh, so, I support um, what uh, Angela and Ryan do. And um, so, I just wanted people to know that. Uh, yeah, I, I reached out and I said the Practical Guitars podcast has uh, uh, given um, a child, a, you know, one month of uh, lessons. So, yeah, um, that's awesome, and I I'm you. glad you did that, Jim. I, I'm ecstatic i'm so happy that people are actually doing things like asking people to solicit donations to do those kinds of things during yeah. so uh we're all in this together we're all americans uh i would assume that we're all from the united states and i know that obviously we have listeners that are not from the united states and those of you who are not from the united states as far as i'm concerned you're you're in the same boat with us right now anyway of course um so i support everybody that's why i was laughing because like even the protesters out the street like i'm not exactly aligned with their thought processes but i'm kind of like you know what we're all in this boat together yeah, I mean, right. you got to do what you got to do. And like, I'm not, I'm not frustrated with a civil unrest. I just think that's, you know, in, in the middle of a, a potential pandemic being, being in a crowd of people doesn't sound like a good time to me. <laughs> but you know, I, yeah. And I don't want to take that away from people. I'm going to continue my social distancing until as a responsible adult and, and uh, citizen and member of society. Uh, that said, if people want to hang out and, and do stuff, I, I don't want to take away people's rights. To stop, yeah. I mean, honestly. All right, all right. I, this is the only time you're going to hear me get really political on the podcast, but I'm libertarian in my beliefs. If you really want to go out and do yeah. that, you know, if it kills you, I mean, I guess that makes the country stronger, right? I mean, if you're, yeah, the, it's was like social Darwinism. I think is the thing that they use there. Whatever. Mm-hmm. So just you know, just just remember, like, it, 
either watch out for yourself or do what you got to do. Like I support yeah. you. So um, anyway, moving on. Uh, yeah, I support, I support people who smoke until they get emphysema, but I'm not going to pay for your emphysema treatments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I got the black lung. You were only down there one day. No. Um, <laughs> yeah, what movie? <laughs> Zoolander, my friend. Zoolander. You were only down there one day. This is the podcast for ants. Um, anyway, and that might be the name of the yeah. episode. The podcast for ants. <laughs> this is awful. How could you do this? How are you going to get the children inside of that little building? Well, there's a grinder. <laughs> uh, and it was used on the set of uh, Pink Floyd's The Wall. Yeah, another wall. Um, <laughs> the wall, yeah. Uh, anyway. Uh, so... Tonight we had a we had a uh, Facebook group member suggest um, actually suggested a week ago and we didn't get to talk about it in the last episode. I think we're going to talk about it now. Uh, writing styles. So Jim, I don't know how much writing of music you do. Um, I've been doing a lot more of it lately. I being stuck thing. Yeah, because you're bored. Like there's nothing else to do. It's like what the hell not. Yeah. Um, I have managed to find ways out of writing like really bad during COVID-19. I have a couple of new song ideas that have come up during it, but like I got flooring I'm putting in. I'm working probably 12 to 13 hours a day. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's not been fun. Um, but I'm, I'm actually forcing myself to stop work tomorrow at a reasonable hour. Um, mostly cause I have taken early day tomorrow's Tuesday. Um, I have, I have, for those of you who don't know, I am in therapy and I have therapy on Tuesdays. Um, so it's trash day for me. So yeah, if I'll give my therapy spiel too. if you have mental health problems, see a therapist. Yeah. Uh, and even if you don't think you have mental health problems, maybe see a therapist. Maybe you do have some mental health problems. And you don't know about them. Uh, anyway, moving on. Um, so writing styles, uh, I, so he asked specifically about forced, like structured writing versus right. like, um, what I would call muse writing where somehow, you know, the heavens and the, you know, seas unite and you have this thing that comes out called art. Oh. Um, all right. So I'm going to be real. I'm a muse writer. That that tends to be what I am. And when it comes, like, I get a, I get a flood of stuff. And, and then it's just like, how do I capture all this? Um, and I think that's the big challenge is when you have a flood if you're a muse writer, like how do you capture it? Um, and there are some definite strategies to accomplish that. I have found that using just, you know, my phone to videotape me playing riffs. Um, and I do as much of that as I can. And then at the end of the process, like I'll look back and find out what I like. And then I can use what I like to assemble music. It's a little bit different for me because I don't write a whole lot of lyrics. I do write lyrics occasionally but I don't write a whole lot. And so for that reason, like I can get away with, I think user writing a lot more than maybe other people can. Um, I have done some structured writing. Uh, I do not prefer it. Um, I can do it. Some of my best songs have been under structured writing circumstances. And it's more or less when I, when I sit down with structured writing, I think of it more like a crossword puzzle than I do. Um, like, writing you know from the from the gut or whatever whereas like the, i have these right. chords 
and I have this melody and they all have to fit well together. And then I have, you know, this, I have these black squares over here that I can't touch. So, <laughs> you know, I got to go, I got to work it around by, by making a chorus that bends. And then that's going to lead into the big bridge that, you know, it's the eight boxes. And then there's another black line. So now I have to take it back to the, to the vert, you know, it's like, so I think about it in terms of um, structures. Uh, I start with chords and then I start with um, like time. Actually, probably before I do anything, I start with time signatures, probably then chords. Then uh, I think about like the component elements of a song. So like first bridge, chorus, uh, alternate verse, pre-bridge, pre-chorus, things like that. Um, and then what actually probably start from the big to the small. Honestly, usually it's, I know I'm going to do a song, this, this structure, and then I do the uh, time signatures, and then I do the chords, and then I'm working on the melody. And the melody, and the melody, usually, once you've got all the other elements in place, the melody usually writes itself, um, at least for me. And I've done it the other way, too, where, like, I'll do the melody before the chords, or I'll flip things around. And it makes for interesting results, but I think that the winning formula for me is to start with the, um, the overall piece, and then work down to the small. Um, and it doesn't mean like so. It doesn't mean things don't change during the process, but like when you start with a structured writing program, I I tend to be the guy that's like, hey, I'm gonna write a song using an ab cab song structure, and then, right. <laughs> and then and then like get halfway through it and go, man, it's still only like two minutes long. I need a longer solo section. That's that's like that. Uh, when whenever your people say that, I think about that song Abacab, which is what that album Abacab from Genesis Abacab. that yeah. almost made my ten albums list. Because I, I love, love that. It's Earth, Wind, and Fire on the horns on there. Yeah. So for me, <clears throat> it's a lot different for um, for songwriting in that. I can write structure. Like somebody will say, hey, Jim, can you give me some lyrics for this? Or can you write me – I've got some lyrics. Can you write me some music over it? Um, so very Bernie Toppin, Elton John-esque um, for that. So I'll, I'll go, okay, let me see if I can come up with a um, with a thing. So I'll, I'll pretty much ask him, well, what, what do you want these lyrics to say? Because even though I might look at them and look at them in a literal sense, I want to we'll look at them in a more poetic sense. Where do they come from? What heartfelt plays? Um, Bernie, the beauty of, of uh, Elton John, I know you're not an Elton John fan, but a Bernie, the beauty of Bernie Toppin and Elton John was Bernie Toppin would send Elton John lyrics. And Elton John would just write music. And it, he didn't even have to know um, any of what the lyrics meant to Bernie, they, what they meant to Elton was what came of it. And I learned to do that later. Um, but uh, anyway, so I've done that. Um, or somebody will bring me um, a piece of music and they'll say, can you help me like structure uh, a solo for this or help me, help me with the melody on that? So sometimes I'll do that. Um, the other thing that I do is with, if a song is written by me, very typically will I write something in a bubble or very atypically will I write something in a bubble but if something is written by me if I'm the only writer what I'll do is I'll say it'll usually come to me like at the weirdest time I'll be half awake or I'll be in the shower um, I'm about to fall asleep um, 
I just got up to, you know, it, it, uh, I, there's a lot of bathroom references here. <laughs> I, I, I just got up to the a, a majority of yeah. time of his working hours, uh, pooping on company well, time because his boss, makes, his boss makes a dollar and he makes a dime. So he likes to poop yeah. on company time. Yep. That's a song. Um, it must be anyway, more hired. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I'll be in the weirdest days. I'll be making myself something to eat and a song comes to me. So um, I used to write a lot of like sappy love songs when I was younger. It, it was um, a thing. And then I wrote a lot of um, uh, other type of like um, come together type things. You know, let's come on. We're, we're a group of people. We're a team, you know, very hipster type things when I was younger. Um, now I tend to write stuff about shoes, but like um, shoes. I think we need to explore <laughs> this a bit more. <laughs> I'm just saying that it'll be very random. Um, but the melody comes first. Almost always the melody comes first. Um, the idea of what the melody is going to carry might be later, but the melody comes first for me. And then I build chords around the melody because I know what chords will fit what I can comp on the um, melody. And then I'll do that. So I might know that... Uh, you know, I want it to sound like this, and then I'll go in and I'll say, "Oh, okay. Well, if I could, if I could do that, then all I have to do is this to, you know, to create a, a chord structure, and then um, that will, you know, the melody has already carried my feelings. So, um, if I bring it to somebody else, if I say, "Hey, can you fill this in? Can you put something in here?" Um, and I want to talk a little bit about that too, of our, as far as uh, uh, effects go, um, then. Uh, I'll do that, um, and I'll I'll create uh, I'll start very simple. It'll be a very simple melody line, uh, very simple chord structure. Um, something that that uh, you know I'm not uh, well anyway. Uh, the uh, Dan from the um, that pedal show said um, that if somebody else had said to him was a simple story, chord structure requires a more complex melody and a more complex chord structure. Um, typically requires a, a simpler melody, um, and the, uh, and I kind of tend to agree with that because a simple chord structure allows for more space. The melody can can has a lot more room to go to bloom. Where a complex chord structure kind of confines a melody because it's almost like there is a melody within the chord structure. If that makes it sense. It depends. It depends. So, uh, classic example. Um. Well, I mean, really, any bop, bebop, jazz thing. Uh, when, when, so, and I think Danny Rabin may have talked to us offline, or talked to me at least offline about this. Um, it may not have made it this sh- made it into the show, where he was talking about inside playing inside and outside the chords, and right. he was saying that the his band, of course, is very an inside the chord band, and so the, some of the other bands we were talking about were very outside the chord bands. And his whole thing was like, they don't stick to the defined norms of what you would expect to hear versus a certain chord. Um, and that they're okay with being a little bit more free with it. And I, you'll find that a lot more jazz. I don't think that, I think your rules basically apply to like most pop and rock music until you get into like the more aggressive styles, like, um, like math, like math rock and math metal and like uh, basically any of the more extreme metal genres. Um, where that's that's gonna apply a lot less 
Because, um, for example, the tritone gym, that's a perfect example. Mm-hmm. That's something that gets used a lot of stuff where the tritone doesn't fit the chord, and it's used for that reason. So, yeah, I, I think generally what you're saying is is absolutely correct in that simpler chords imply uh, more complicated melodies and vice versa. But I think there's a lot of room to violate those rules. It just depends on what you're doing. Um, right, right. I'm a very um, – there's no – I don't look for rule structure, although I know, um, you know, my major my major scale chords would be major, minor, minor, major, major, minor, diminished. Right. Um, and I know my extensions, um, you know, but I, I don't – how do I say this? That doesn't mean I follow them. It means I'll use them um, if I if I'm stuck. I yeah. can use them. I know that. Okay. Ah, uh, crap. What am I going to use for my next chord? Where am I going to go during this this bridge? Oh, probably to the minor six. But I might want to surprise myself, you know, and do something different rather than go to the you know to lead the bridge with the minor six because that's where you'll go. And and uh, I, I might want to break out of that. But if I'm stuck and I just need to finish. And that's the thing about songwriting, and I and I, I don't know if you find this. If you don't get a song written, a song doesn't get written. Right. Okay? I, I mean, that sounds – you know, that's like saying it is what it is, right? I, I, well, obviously it is what it is. It isn't anything else, right? Um, the, if you don't write the song, it doesn't get written. So if you half-ass write a song and then you stick it in a shelf, that's not a song. That's a That's a – idea well let me share let me share some thoughts about some prolific songwriters i'm trying yeah. to I, I can't think of names of people that have said some of these things but like you'll hear if you if you read up and you follow some of the people who are very prolific they will say things like especially in the nashville scene you're gonna write a thousand shit songs pardon my french before you write one good one and that and and that the thousand that you wrote before it are the reason that one good one exists because you work right. your way up to it. And then you're going to find out you're going to write 500 and then you're going to write another good one and then 250 and write another good. So it's going to, it's going to snowball. You're going to get better at writing songs. It's a skill like everything else. And the only right. way you're going to do it is by exploring it and doing it better. Um, yep. So my years of writing a song, recording it and then deleting it uh, being death clock in real life, um, if, if you did watch the Metalocalypse from last show, um, uh, you will know that that's what they do. And I have been a proponent of doing that for a long time. But I kind of wish I hadn't done that because then I would look back at some of that music and I would go, oh, this is trash. But at least I got this tune. Right. Right. And that's that's exactly what I was saying is that you you can you can write. That doesn't mean you have to publish. Doesn't mean you have to share it. This means you write it, right? And then you, like I said, these these ideas that we put in our shelves. There's nothing wrong with having ideas, but if you never finish a song, you'll never finish the song. Right. That's what. I'm and that's to what I was getting into. Is I was just doing the same song over and over and over and never finished it because I knew that was a good song, but I couldn't like, I couldn't figure out how to flesh it out. You know. Yep. And I and I think that exercise actually opened up a lot of gates. Um, there's definitely some similarities between several of my songs that were driven by that. Well, there's a um, there's a lot of uh, examples um, of songs that were ideas that someone came up with. It's a, I used to um, – oh, I still am a huge Bee Gees fan. And uh, the Bee Gees talked about this song um, that they'd written that 
um, Barry had come up with a song and Robin had come up with a song. Right. And then, and then they both had a song, but they didn't have enough of a song. So they literally they're swapping keys around and you know and put it together. Yeah. And it sounded great and it became one of their biggest hits. And it's called World. And and it was um it was in late sixties, early excuse me, early seventies. And um they it, it's funny because uh, it literally sounds like two different songs. Um and if you listen to Comfortably Numb, that was two songs. Yeah. That was something David Gilmore had worked for his solo and Roger Waters had worked on that verse for his the doctor. Oh, you'll called. find that gluing together of material is rampant in rock music. Yeah. And actually, um, the biggest examples I can think of are like are like Bohemian Rhapsody, uh, Bicycle Race, um, like most of the Queen songs that people really love, uh, Mustafa, um, I, I said Bicycle Race, Jealousy was also one. Yeah. Um, many of those songs, I think even no millionaire waltz was not because actually they explicitly said that millionaire waltz was not, that was all Freddie. He had written that song up to be kind of a sequel of sorts to Bohemian Rhapsody. Um, and so you, if you ever listen to the, the a day at the races, which is the album after, uh, night, the opera, night um, the opera yeah. you will, you will hear that song. And it, I, it is, it is probably his his like one of his best tunes and nobody ever plays it. So I would highly recommend a, a listen to that one. Um but yeah, oh uh Go Fashion Lover Boy was also like three or four songs they mashed up uh yeah. inside there. So that that's a, definitely a tool like um if you've got a couple of ideas kicking around, play around with, you know, do it a minor key, do it a major key, do it in a different key. Uh maybe consider like uh, chord substitutions, things like that to make the thing work. Um, but, you know, my whole, like, I got stuck for a long time because I tried to play inside the chords all the time. That's actually why I brought that up. Um, and I had to learn to play outside the chords. And that was like, that was the eye-opening moment where I was like, oh, so I don't really have to change the chord because I'm not playing a note that's not in the chord anymore. And I, I know that's like the super generic, very tiny version of it. It's like, a minor, the the three best sounding notes that you could play in an A minor against A minor would be like A, C, and E, because obviously that's the the notes that make up A minor. Um, and so I thought, like, if I play an A, I have to trade. If we go A, B, C, I would have to trade the B as a passing tone, which is one option, right? You could do that, or if you were going to do it over like a, a half measure, you might want to consider doing an A. And then a B, an A minor, and then a B diminished, and then when you get to the C, then you would do a C major or an A or a C minor or C major six or something like that to tie it back to the the minor chord. But but the whole idea is that like you can you can subdivide. You can say how many chords do I want to do for this measure, or how do I want to fit this against the melody? And you can get really granular with it, or you can try to be like as abstract as possible. Um, does that make sense? I, yeah. I think it's a really cool tool for anybody who's listening. Um, when you chart out a song, try to like write out your melody and then write the chords over the melody. And if you just do it on a piece of paper, you know, a tab, it's fine. Write your chords over the melody and then right. actually just go through and say, you know what? If it's one chord per measure or one chord per two measures or phrase, chop it up, divide it, see what happens. 
Um, and that's a great way to get into extensions too. Well, a lot of people, yeah, I was just about to say to get into extensions, a lot of the, um, a lot of people think that, oh, it's only three chords. So it can't be, um, it can't be interesting. Let me tell you something. If you throw some extensions in there, you throw some susses in there, you throw some stuff in there, some inversions in there. Okay. All of a sudden you take, um, a song that was make a moving, make a moving baseline over it. Right. That's well, again, that's, that's using the substitution. Move the bass line, and no longer is the bass note for CC anymore. Right, right. You know, explore make the, the bass note C B flat, and see what happens. Yeah, I actually and I have got, gotten so much mileage out of messing around with the bass notes. I cannot recommend that enough. Play around with your bass notes, and if you if you're a guy like me that's like into kind of weird dissonances and stuff, that's a great way to do it. Uh, if you heard in my jam the other night, I was playing uh, minor seconds at one point. <laughs> today I was I was working on a song. Literally, it's it's funny you brought that up because today I was working on a song where I wanted to purposely use as many extension chords as possible. Oh, so I've been there. So what I wanted to do was sit on G as long as possible in the song. So I was just sitting on G, but I played G, then G seven. Then G minor seven. Okay, so, then, G, so, so G dominant seven, then minor seven. Okay. Yeah, dominant. Uh, yeah. Well, G major seven, dominant seven, dominant seven. So all right, all right. Major. Yeah. So it's like it's almost like a Latin thing at that point. <laughs> exactly. You're doing voice then, uh, Yes, and then I was going to. I was. I went to the uh, the thirteenth. Um, I went to the ninth. Um, then I went to the eleventh. Then I went back to the ninth. And then I went to the, you know, trying to move the the melody within the chord so that it wasn't just this one chord. If you want to take a perfect example of, of a pop song that did that, in 1985, um, John Mellencamp had an album called Uh-Huh. No, I'm sorry. Called, um, oh, crap. What was it called? It had a song called Rain on the Scarecrow. And I can't remember now that it, it had... Um, I don't know. ROC in the USA yeah. and uh, small um, small town and the big one. The big one. Yeah. yeah, it was a huge, huge album. And I'm I'm seeing him on a on a um, farm, and I can't remember what the darn name of it was. That's when he became very active in the whole farmers thing that he and Willie Nelson. He, still, he still lives on a farm. Yeah, my, yeah, my Gary family members yeah. every every once in a while run into one of his band members in uh, Indiana. Yeah, yeah, because he doesn't live. Uh, he can't live too too far from me. So um, uh, the uh, the point is that um, this song called "Rain on the Scarecrow" is pretty much F sharp minor. That's that's the chord for the entire verse is F sharp minor. But you play, but the um, Grissom here, uh, Carl, not Carl Grissom, uh, his bass or his guitar player, his last name is Grissom, David Grissom. Because um, he he has a signature Paul Reed Smith. He was one of the first signature um, Paul Reed Smith players. And uh, uh, Grissom writes this cool melody that plays constantly over the F sharp minor to keep it from being an F sharp minor chord the whole time. And he does it by adding extensions, upper extensions to the to the chord. So rather than just playing F sharp minor, F sharp minor, F sharp minor, he's He's walking the chord, leading it 
And he and what's cool about it is he leads it and then he goes, Nope, going back. And then he leads it, then he says, Nope, going back. Then he leads it, and then finally you get to the, res- to the, chorus, the real resolution. And becomes, yeah, and then it punches you right on the scarecrow, blood on the plow. You know, it, it hits you in the face. And the and the um, lyric being um, that, you know, there's rain on the scarecrow, but blood on the plow, um, land, you know, detonation, the land made me proud. You know, it's it's what we're all of a sudden realizing that, that wait a minute, we, we've become so reliant on external sources. You know, um, going into uh, outside of this for just a minute and what it kind of foretold is we've got this thing where right now, did you realize that today as we're recording this, which is 420 guys, Hitler's birthday. <laughs> just kidding. Cause I don't, I don't, I don't imbibe, but anyway, um, but uh, um, today on 420, 2020, they are paying the oil companies are paying the distributors to take their oil. Yeah. The oil is negative dollars. Yes. <laughs> it's, it costs less money than it does. It, it literally costs less than zero. But one of my uh, one of my coworkers said, I love it when we get to divide by zero. Yeah. <laughs> so just just letting you know that. But anyway, it, it just it, it just proves that see we had so many reserves, it's like, please buy our oil, please. We we, we can't we've got this oil and it's gonna go to waste. Man, it's we, so we, funny we, that you know, we have a we have a oil disaster in the Gulf of Mexico, and all of a sudden our prices go up, even though we have tremendous reserves. And right, right. I hope that that's a lesson to people to say, you know what? You. But anyway, um, the the punch of the song is so is so powerful because he hangs on that that movement. And uh, for those those of you who don't know what core, uh, lead voicings are. It means that you're trying to take the song in another direction, and so um, when you when you lead it, you're trying to say, okay, it's it's literally what it what it stands for. It's leading the chords to another place. It's pulling the it's resolution. The ear, the brain, your your whole is being. That's what dissonance does to you, though. It goes, uh-uh, not taking you there, or it goes. I'm going to play two notes that never go together. <laughs> no, I look at dissonance as the climbing the mountain. And yeah. Yeah. So that's and then you know, when off. you get to the peak, that's when you hit the, the uh, tonic. But Well, what's cool about if you if you play a, uh, a chord and then you go, you know what? I'm going to use the ninth, but I'm going to sit on the ninth. I'm going to play it over and over. And the ninth clashes. What I, the, what, and I don't know what the intervals are. I'd have to think about it, and I'm not going to – What's the second? brain power is ruined for this, but my favorite one is like an, like an E uh, major chord against a C, like a C9. Like a C9, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it sounds really nasty. <laughs> because what's the ninth of C? Uh, D. Yeah. 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 So you're adding that. You're adding um, uh, over, an, over an E – what is in C? C is made up of C, E, and G. And if you're playing E major, what's the what's the uh, G in E major? G sharp. Yeah, what's sure. the G in C? G. And so those two are yeah, going. Yeah, they're clashing, like, and it's your tritone right there. Yeah. Yep. Um, There's always a tritone in a clash. Almost all. Well, I say always. Most all, most of the Yeah, but the, the but those that particular that and it's not just that key, but I mean like that particular progression. I don't even know what the, the interval structure would be but it it works really well and i've used it 
I've gotten away with a lot with that. Um, I think we, I think we've killed this one. I think we took, we've killed the crap out of this topic. We're forty minutes. I don't know. I think what we didn't say really was. So, I think that um, uh, to to kind of bring it all into a focus thing is there's never one way to do it. No, it it depends on your needs too. Uh, right. If you're, I mean, if your like goal is to get a record out, then you sit down and you write some songs and you can tell the right. bands that didn't write a lot of songs because when they have to do that, guess what? They write some stinkers. Um, yeah. And it, that's basically, that's how that works. Right. So when you see an album that has like eight songs of filler and four good tunes, you know that that's because they didn't do a lot of writing. Like, so most of the time they're writing is hit or miss. And maybe they had a producer right. in the room helping them with those four songs. Or there was um, bands like Pink Floyd who said, you know what? We're just going to take a while between albums. It's okay. We're going to take three or four back, years. Back then, that was like eons. And yeah. it was amazing that they stayed in the public consciousness for the three years in between. Because now, like back back, back in those days, you had two albums a year in some cases. Yeah. And then singles yeah. in between, which is even more nuts to me. Um, we need a single. We need a single. Pink Floyd was like uh, single. <laughs> what, the hell, what the hell is that for? Yeah, we do. We uh, do single you know, albums. <laughs> we have one. It's called Dark Side of the Moon. Yeah, <laughs> you should hear. It's really good. Um, no, I, I I think this is a topic. Maybe we could touch touch on later. Actually, I think we could come back to this and talk about this like at a later time, and maybe have some more interesting observations about it because i think covid is changing a lot of people's perceptions of like what they do with their instrument i know people who i thought and they they had told me that they perceive themselves primarily as a performer who are now kind of like exploring these other avenues because let's face it folks for most of us we're probably not going to be performing this summer i mean this is they're talking about in chicago we're going to have closed venues probably until july no bars yeah. until july yeah. i mean that's Possibly the rumors longer. going around so um, I I can only imagine what the it's going to devastate the music scene here. I mean, that's basically what's going to happen, and we're gonna we're gonna lose a lot of venues, basic basically. And so after that's over, who knows? Um, and yeah, and I don't know how many people care, but I mean, you're looking at comedy, you're looking at sports, you're looking at uh, um, theater, you're looking at like you said, music. I mean, we're, there's going to be a lot of shakeups in local band lineups too. If you're the guy that's like sitting there on the wings, like maybe you have a band that you like that you'd like to be in or something like that. Keep your eyes peeled because this is where those yeah. opportunities are going to come knocking. Because some people are going to have to split. It's going to have to happen. I know. Yeah. I know some musicians are already talking about like moving in with mom and dad and stuff because they require mu music to be part of their income in order to support themselves. So they're going to have to move yeah. with a relative. I mean, that's, that's crazy when you think about it. We, that's Unfortunately, we have an economy where we really can't prepare, prepare ourselves um, more than the daily necessities unless you – I mean, unless you're a complete pauper, um, live like a complete pauper, not that you are a yeah. complete pauper. Um, right. Obviously, you can, you can prepare yourself for it, but you just don't know what's going to happen. So even me, like right now, um, we're, we're doing very well because both my wife and I are still working. And we're not spending anything because we're not going out. Yeah. So we're doing pretty well right now. But even she and I are like super guarded about our money because we know that one of our job situations could change in a moment's notice. 
And yep. we know we need to be protected in that instance. And so we're being very, very frugal and being very careful. This is why I'm not buying an SG or anything like that right now. Uh, it's because I don't know what the next couple months hold. Um, but we're professionals. And so I have a feeling neither of us would be able to work for a terribly long amount of time. We're both pretty in-demand professionals, actually. Um, so right. It would just be a matter of working that out. And if you're in my wife's case, she has extra skills on top of um, she has a certification actually uh, on top of her normal career that's totally separate. So she will always have some sort of unemployment opportunity available to her, um, which is fortunate we were able to make that sacrifice so she could go through that program. Um, anyway, so um, we talked about writing styles, and I think this actually relates a lot to this topic. But I wanted to I wanted to get back to our discussion about intermediate guitarists, and we're going to continue this theme. This is going to be a regular thing. I mean, not happen every episode, but. We're going to circle back and talk about intermediate players a lot more um, because I think that's the new blood that we really need to be fostering right now to get, make sure that guitar stays focused like in the community and that, that people are still playing guitar music, et cetera. Um, so last week we talked about how to go from an intermediate to being maybe more than an intermediate guitar player, or at least taking your next steps beyond where you are. Right. Um, and this week we're going to talk about, breaking out of colloquialism. Now, as I told Jim, I'm embarrassed to admit, I did not know what that word meant until I was in college. <laughs> and that meant, word actually means like um, common things that you would find. Like it's, right. it's common sayings, but also cultural sayings. And that's a, that's, it's a trope, right? And that's probably the better right. word to use for this um, because I'm not really talking about things that are that are specific to culture. Although, as I bring it up, I am thinking about things that are specific to culture because they're definitely blues colloquialisms. And there's definitely Very much so. um, rock and roll colloquialisms. Uh, your Chuck Berry licks, for example. Jazz colloquialism. Oh, yeah. Um, there's a lot there's of tropes there. There's <laughs> um, a lot. So, if you guys haven't listened to a lot of jazz, you'll find them pretty fast. All right. So I'm going to pick on the pentatonic scale really hard in this episode. But I want to. I want to. Go ahead. Before I, I'll defend it. Before I do Maybe anything. I before I do anything, I want to talk about why you need to take what I'm saying with a pinch of salt, because it is so. The pentatonic scale. The reason why it's played by everybody in every genre of music for every reason is because it's the easiest thing in the world to harmonize with. When you're playing a chord, it's like it's pretty easy to make a pentatonic progression work over or a pentatonic melody work over it. Um, and your minor pentatonic isn't that different than your major pentatonic, et cetera. So unless you get a lot of mileage out of what you got there, right? Um, in guitar playing, it's simple because it's a box. You look at the fretboard and you go, yeah, I can remember that shape, right? And you don't have all these little notes in between that you got to like kind of remember, where's that finger go? Um, I am here to tell you, if you want to break out of a rut, stop playing straight pentatonics. Just stop it. Just every time you do it, just slap yourself in the hand hard as you can. Um, and then if you still gonna, can't stop, get the, the other hammer, way, get the hammer and just <laughs> bash your fingers. And eventually you'll stop. Now, once your fingers are broken, you still got to play the guitar. So that's the whole point. It's like the pain. You're supposed to remember that playing pentatonics brings pain. That's how we're doing this. Go on, go on Joe. I, I know you got, I know you want to defend the pentatonic. I, I will later. I'm good. I'm going to defend and and uh, and agree um, in, in that 
I think that you can use the pentatonics. All right, we were talking about colloquialism. So before we before we even came on, there are certain colloquial there are phrases. Uh, uh, let me give you a, um, a good example, and and you you had it right away. The the Chuck Berry thing. That All right. So that's just it, it. It depends on where you play it, but it's typically an A, a minor pentatonic. It's it's literally the beginning of Stairway to Heaven solo. Yeah, Johnny, Johnny be good. That's what he's talking about. That is, yeah, that's the Opening that's the beginning like of so many solos. Back in Black, Stairway to Heaven. I do, Johnny be good. I do it too. I mean, I could go on forever. I do it too with that. But but, yep, but, but Jim, when I do it, I sweet pick it. Well, <laughs> I don't. Well, actually, I I do something weird with it, but it's it's. Uh, it's something that my my uh, one of my uh, guitar instructors showed me that I thought was pretty cool. Instead of bending, I slide it. Um, and uh, he said, "If you watch Chuck Berry, that's the way he did it." Yep, was slide. Yep. And he showed me, and I was like, "Oh, that is pretty cool." Most people bend that because I think he was playing so, wound G's. Yeah, he was playing wound G's on a um, on a ES three thirty five, and they were probably elevens um, or better. Uh, Back in those days, and, probably yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they were. They, that was a jazz. They might even be. Like they oh. might even be uh, uh, flat welds. Yeah, it would, it yeah, would surprise me. That is a possibility. Um, anyway, it was a that was a big e, uh, ES guitar. I can't remember if it was a I, was it, was it one seventy five maybe one seventy five. Yeah, no, like it was a, a big. Yeah, bar. it was a big one. So anyway, um, what you what we we talked about somebody. I don't want to throw up a name. Uh, but we were talking about somebody who said, "Yeah, this guitar, this guy's a better guitar player than me." And then you were like, "No, That's BS. no, he's not a better guitar player than you. You just think he is because he's doing some licks that you don't know." And that's just it. If we look at somebody who can like pull off, I remember when I was a teenager and I looked at uh, somebody who could play Johnny Be Good perfectly, and I thought, "Wow, that is awesome." And then I played it with Al. That is not very hard. <laughs> but it took time. It takes time to learn. And if you sit down and learn some stuff that you want to do, you'll find that some of the stuff that other people are doing is very random and very – so one of the tropes is to play – if you're going to play in a pentatonic, right, you'll play three notes, uh, ascending or descending. Then you'll play the um, – you'll play starting on the – so let's say you start on the – Five and you play um, five minor three one right. That's one way to to descend. Then you go minor three one um, flat seven, and then you go um, one flat seven. Uh, what is it? Five right? Yeah. So that's one way to do it. So in other words, what you're doing is you're starting on the next note down. You're playing a descending. You're playing do 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 do. That's a that's a trope. Everybody does that. Right. And yet if you if you sit down and memorize it, which is an awesome thing to do, I don't think I don't think you should do it. Um then all of a sudden you're gonna go, oh that ain't so hard. That ain't all that. It's just remembering where to start and just playing three notes. Or the other way to do it is to do four notes. Um, do it in four notes. Um, yeah. We're, well, I just call them by the. And we're talking specifically about pentatonics, right? When we do it with a. Pentatonic. Right, right, right. That's what um, I'm saying. That's a pentatonic trope. Okay. So yes, and you're absolutely right. Uh, and there are some situations and instances where you can get beyond 
the normal way of thinking when you do that. And I, I think part of our discussion here needs to be like, how do we break out of this rut? So if you are, well, doing right, right, it, right. if you're playing these like patterns, get away from the twos and threes. I would say if you go into four, there's one thing I'll, I'll tell you to avoid on on, the, on that as well. But I use fives and sixes almost exclusively yeah. because it doesn't sound like anybody else. The only other guy that does fives and sixes that I hear regularly is Eric Johnson. And let's face it, I am not as clean a player as he will ever be. So therefore, I have my own sonic stamp on it. Um, right. And the other thing is I don't use him in the, in the normal box position most of the time. Now, when I'm doing fives and sixes, because um, I haven't been doing them a whole lot, I've been actually working them out lately, and I end up doing them in the normal box position. But my whole intention is I will never play them in that box position. I will play them at you know the next the next step up, or you know I don't know the cage system well enough to give you all the positions, but to go you know where I'm starting on a on you know in a minor I'd start on a C or you know even a D and just play the the uh, pentatonic starting there using those kind of those kind of ideas but that's how you change it up right like you listen to what other people are doing you learn how to do it you say it's really cool why is it cool and then you figure out how do i take it the next step or how do i subvert it like how do i do something to it that makes it my own um and if you've never if you don't find yourself stopping and saying how do i make it my own then you are in a trope um now sometimes tropes can be less tropey than others and you can get away with it um like if you're gonna tap don't voice lead and tap because then you sound like Eddie Van Halen because that's all he does is voice lead and tap um, when he when he's doing that that style, right? Um, obviously, like Hot for Teacher is what I'm thinking of. Uh, yeah. It's pretty clear that intro is all tapped, right? And if you're going to do that, you're going to sound like Red Beach or Eddie Van Halen. I mean, that's essentially where you're going to be. Um, so I guess the uh, as far as the penetro- penetronic tropes go, the reason why I pick on the pentatonic scale so much is because it's the one everybody uses. And there's some easy ways to break out of it. Um, number one is if you're a rock player, minor pentatonic, everybody uses the minor pentatonic. Stop it. Find out something else. Start using the, the uh, diatonic minor, diatonic harmonic minor. Um, diatonic just means eight notes. Uh, is it? Yeah, it's diatonic, right? That's just the Diatonic means... Diatonic means staying within the within the scale. Right, that's right. But it's there are eight notes in the diatonic scale. I thought die was I thought dia was like eight or something, but you, no, it's not. That's not Greek for eight. No. Um, so the reason why I've been using the diatonic minor scale almost exclusively for like almost a decade, probably at this point, is because those fingerings translate themselves to the major scale as well. Start on your pinky instead of you start on your index finger if you're going to be doing it in the normal box position. And you will find you will get way, way, way more mileage out of out of learning regular diatonic licks. And you will also see that the pentatonic box sits over it. And so you will know at least some of the notes to begin with. Um, I think you could definitely get into diatonic tropes too. Like if you play minor thirds, you know, and that kind of stuff, like you're just going to do the minor third, like interval thing. Um, everybody does that uh, root fifth interval thing across the, uh, the minor. A lot of people do that. Um, the, the trick is I, I like to talk about, um, so we all know ascending descending, right? I think that 
cooler trick is when you can confuse people. Am I ascending or am I descending? So you play two notes up and then one note lower. And then you go lower and you shift, you know, maybe one note down and then you go, you know, one note up, one one note up and then one more note down. And then you actually use that to descend. And that kind of freaks people out a little bit because it's like, wait a minute, you're playing an ascending lick that is also descending. Like the whole contour of the whole uh, the whole phrase is descending. And that's the best way I can think of it is like, how do you trick somebody? How do you trick their ear into not knowing which way you're going? Because if you can do that, you can excite people. It's a great way to add excitement to music. And it's a very granular thing. But if you work on it, you can turn it into a really big explosive thing. Um, And it just takes a lot of effort to like sit down and kind of work out those kinds of concepts. This is not just applying to soloing. I mean, this is melodies and everything. So, um, so yeah, so a diatonic scale, just just so that people know, because some people will say, oh, the diatonic scale can also can only be a major scale or a minor scale, whatever. Diatonic scale is any scale that contains two or uh, excuse me, um, five whole tones and two semitones. That's the that's the diatonic scale. So any diatonic scale, it, it, so any mode of a major scale is a diatonic scale, and it, a minor scale is a mode of a major scale. Those who don't know that that's what the minor scale is. It's a, it's a scale or the, the mode of a major scale. Let me, um, what's that? Can I, can I back the theory check up for just a second? Yeah. So here's a thought, right? We're pentatonic. Everybody knows that they like it because it fits over a lot of things. Um, right. Diatonic maybe it's a little bit more complicated to do that with because you do have major and minor tonalities that are, that are very explicit. Um, yep. Now I, without getting into the discussion of modes, because major and minor scales are actually the same scale, are actually the same scale, but different. They start on different notes that they're mode. They start That's what a mode is. They're mode. Um, yeah. If you know your major triad, your minor triad and your diminished triad, Everybody thinks, oh yeah, I kind of know, I kind of know the basic triads, but nobody knows the augmented triad. Well, yeah, it's like it's like no one suspects the Spanish Inquisition. I mean, yeah. <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> yeah. no one expects the Spanish Inquisition. And, and and the reason why I bring it up is because <laughs> I think I think if we're going to learn, if you want to teach people to think about like thinking outside the box in terms of, hey, I only have these notes to deal with, or like how do I avoid the soloing tropes that you know, will set me apart. You need to know your major. You need to know your minor. You need to know your diminished. And you also probably need to know your, augmented. your augmented scales as well, which, which is nice because uh, your augmented and diminished scales are basically just mashed together. The yeah. I mean, they're basically the same thing. Um, basically. I mean, a, a person that, that studies theory is going to tell you, no, no, but, it's basically the same thing when it comes to how they, how they, func- well, that's where they, they differ is how they function. Right. That's the difference between whether something is um, uh, augmented or diminished. Well, I mean, I've heard people say things like the half diminished. I've heard people call it the half yeah, diminished yeah. scale. Half diminished scale. Yeah, yeah, because it really can be applied over both. And really, you're not, I, I think of the, 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 I've never heard the augmented chord used in like conventional music as a main, like a main chord. It's always a passing tone. And I think because it's a passing tone, 
um, you can get away with a lot more over it. Uh, so I always think of it that way. And like, I don't really focus on like switching chords for what I'm playing against it. Um, but that is something you can do. Um, and I think it yields good results. Now, though, I will say this with regard to the pentatonic, if you want to use the same pentatonic and you want to break out of the rut, start playing freaking major pentatonics. That's where I was going. Yeah, that's, like, yeah, I don't know how many well, people can't seem to figure out that ACDC songs are usually major pentatonics over, <laughs> over something. And then the solo is a minor well, pentatonic. It's like, yeah, that's, yeah, that's what I was going to say. He'll switch to a minor pentatonic. For the, just for the solo. Just for the solo. Yeah, because, and he'll, yeah, go well, ahead. It, it's, it's a structural thing. So, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, ma- major pentatonic for the most part, maybe a couple of passing tones in there, major blues. I would say major blues scale, really. And then solo kicks in, and all of a sudden he drops into a, a pentatonic minor. And by he, I mean like either Angus or Malcolm, but usually Malcolm on the on the records would drop into a pentatonic minor. And then all of a sudden, like the song shifts, and you know it immediately when they're about to go into a solo because you hear that tonality shift. And yep. they do it for effect because they want you to know things are about to get real, you know? <laughs> right. Right. And Brian Johnson and of course uh um Oh, geez. Bon Scott would sing in the major pentatonic, um, giving it that liveliness that, that the song had. You shook me all night yeah. long. Um, you know, back in black, um, uh, for those about to rock, um, uh, geez, Girls Got Rhythm. Um, it, you, you, you go on and name them, and most of them are saying in the major pentatonic, and yet the, the solo is in the minor pentatonic. But <clears throat> that's, that's something I was going to get at. So, Something that you could do to practice to get out of the rut of, of um, the pentatonic scale and still use the pentatonic scale, and this is the beauty of it, is um, let's say you're playing in A, start on D. So if you start on D, if you know your notes of the, major, my, uh, the minor pentatonic, which you should know, and the major pentatonic, which you should know, okay, then what you've done is you can, you can say, okay, I'm starting on, let's say, minor pentatonic. Um, to make it uh, more accessible to most people is uh, A minor pentatonic is A, C, D, E, uh, G, A, right? So we've got, we've got, now if you look at it in a, in a scale or, or in a, um, uh, an interval format, it's minor, right? It's a minor third and then um, D to E is a whole tone. Right, or, um, sorry, minor third, yeah, and then C to D is a, um, a whole tone, and D to E is a whole tone. Then you go minor third, and then you go again whole tone. So it's it's whole tone, or I mean uh, minor third, um, whole tone, whole tone, minor third, whole tone. You're always going to do that same thing, circle. <clears throat> um, now, if you look at it, that's why it's so easy. That's why the pattern works the way it does on the guitar. Um, and if you look at it starting from D, then you just say, okay, whole tone, whole tone, minor third, whole tone, minor third. Yeah. It's just, I mean, you just remember that's what I've got to, that's what I've got to play with. And then if you can remember that, then it's easier to play. Like if you want to move up and down the neck, if you can figure it out for one movement on a single string and then figure out how, how to play it. Uh, vertically um, or uh, yeah, vertically from there, then you can go either up or down. 
you can move within that spot because you're able to then move along a string. If you're able to picture those um, intervals on a string, then you're able to move it. Because what a lot of people do is they, they remember box patterns. So they get stuck in box yep. patterns. Yes. And that is that is the danger of the pentatonic. But if you do like what David was talking about when you played five notes, then you've got to play all five notes of the pentatonic scale. You just finished the pentatonic right. scale. <clears throat> and if you learn, if you learn this is another thing. Right. And if you learn like what a shredder will do, a shredder will play three notes uh, per string. Yeah, that's exactly what I do. Actually, yeah. in, so some case, Jim, in some cases, Jim, four notes per string. There you go. <clears throat> and they, and uh, if I'm playing diatonically, I'll play four notes per string because I can fit four notes per string. My hands are too small to play five notes. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, uh, so like where it happens, so you have like A, B, C, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then I'll slide to A, and then we'll pick it up. Yep. And then actually it'll be the same pattern until I get to the B string yep. and then I got to shift it one. And then, you know, yep. it's gravy. Um, and actually, if you learn to do it that way and you do it economy picked, you can get it really fast and really clean. And nobody knows right. that you're like cheating and doing a slide. So, yep. Um, everybody yep. does it. That's or that's the way that kind of guitar playing works. Um, there's a lot of cheating in, in uh, playing fast. Ah. And I recommend, yeah, I recommend learning three note boxes, even though I'm not a person who always uses the three note the three note per string box because if you use a three note per string box you only got to remember two um two boxes i would love and to put out a book for this show a companion book that talks about some of this stuff um at some point in the future maybe we'll yeah. maybe we'll start earmarking episodes where we talk about this material and then we can kind of go back and listen and maybe i'll start mocking up some of the tab for it because i think our listeners are putting little um, instructional videos up. Yeah, there, that's because I think that that would be helpful. I think that I think some people would actually see some real benefit. Something that Jim and I have talked about in the past is that we want to take the show video. Um, there's some logistical challenges in doing it, but they're not insurmountable. Um, and uh, this has largely been been uh, screwed up by my uh, construction project going on here. Um, so hopefully, we'll be able to revisit a lot of this material at some point in the future and go through it and actually show you how it works. Um, right. The other thing, so we're talking about colloquialism still. Did you have something you wanted yeah. to add or can we? Yeah, keep going with the colloquialism because I, well, I got one more thing I want to talk about. All right. So I got another, I got another component here that I want to talk about. Mm -hmm. uh, rhythmic component. So if you're going to play pentatonics and you're <clears> going to do it in ascending third, or you're going to, or you're going to walk up the scale, stop hammering on the second note at, uh, uh, as a triplet. Stop it. Everybody oh, yeah. does it. There used to be this radio commercial where it was like a band, like uh, it was, a, it was a credit card company or something. And it was like the band got their credit card thing. And now they can get enough money to get all their instruments and they can collaborate together. And there's this thing in the background was like, uh, start out and the guy was like playing like one note at a time. And then he started getting better and at the end of it, he's playing like a descending pentatonic and they were acting like he was such a badass. And I'm just sitting there going, what? Like, huh? How, how that, that's like, like, like first month stuff. Like, yeah. and he's, and it just sounded like, like so much like pick the first note, hammer on the second note and walk up the pentatonic scale. And if you're not, first off, if you're not doing it in time, like if you're not doing it as an actual triplet, if it's just a triplet feel because your timing sucks, 
that is amateurish as hell. Um, and it comes off amateurish. Learn your timing. Like, seriously. Um, and then yep. the second thing that happens is that, like, um, you you roll through it and your phrase becomes this, like, very, like, common trope. And just don't do it. This is why I said, like, vary your notes. Pick things that you want to make dynamic. Um, make sure you have an accent in your phrasing. Like, don't assume that, you know, you can pick each note, like, the same volume and not have it sound like a colloquialism because i think i have a theory that all these colloquial phrases tropes happen because they're easy things to do and i think that people tend to rely on what's easy and that's why they sound generic so if you want to break out of that mold you're going to have to stop doing the easy stuff and start trying to do a little bit of the difficult stuff i'm not saying you have to be like you know steve Vai or somebody like that but you gotta you gotta step one step beyond the simple. Well, I think that the, the, the other thing that the simple does for people, and I and I want it to confidence stress this because I want to bring it. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to get to. Okay, they always step it up. Yeah, I, I did that on purpose. Um, so that, but he's, he's absolutely right here, and that's what I was exactly what I was going to get to is this: if if I sit down and I learn. Five or six um, phrases, really good. I say really good on purpose because, folks, you know me, I would always say really well. I'm saying that because it's not really good. It's, it's really well. In other words, I'm not that good at what I just did is what I was getting at. Um, I hope that people understand that my, what I was saying was I meant it wrong because it was supposed to be i'm trying to be cool but it's not cool it's wrong and it sounds it, it sounds it so here's my point you go to a, a guitar shop you go to a show you go to whatever right and this other guitar player you think is really good because they sit there and they play this this riff and they're like oh man look at them they're killing it and then you ask them to slow down and play something else and they yes can't and i've it. run into people like this yes yeah, and it's because they've got like eight eight things in their toolbox. They've got eight. And imagine if all you had was eight phrases you could ever use in your life. You would sound like a valley girl because everything would be like, that's totally like, that's what, you know. Yeah, like, totally. like yeah. you know, like, I get it. you know, totally. Yeah, no, right? No, I don't want you to talk like that anymore, Jim. Freaking stop it. Yeah, I'm already ready to shoot yeah, you. Exactly. Like, <laughs> exactly. But if you're a baby, that sounds pretty so cool. You don't know what it is. But um, my point, my point being that if you only have these little tools, let's say you get a toolbox, right? Remember, remember when you got your first toolkit? You were you were uh, growing up. You bought your first toolkit. Yeah, look, Dave's I got a, there, I got got a stack of toolboxes toolkit. I just bought. He's about the same age that I was when I gave a crap about buying tools. But anyway, so I have a toolkit, right? And almost, I'll, I'll pull out this thing. This 250 of the most common drill bits you'll ever need. Um, and I don't have the one I need. Yeah. I, I was talking about how I couldn't get the freaking feet off that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> off that thing. Because I didn't have the one Allen key. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I have 90 Allen keys. Oh, I'm super one. anal about them now because I'm so tired of going for the Allen wrenches and then not having <laughs> the one I need. The one. <laughs> Yeah. 
so my point is um if you don't have the tools that that you need to be able to do the job you're still not gonna be able to do the job that was my point and so if if you if a person got really good at those those tropes those things that they do then they're like when <laughs> what i just did they are when they use the word like because they don't know any other word to stick in there or to just skip it um, i'm sure this is a realistic example for the show listeners i'm sure everybody knows that one guitar player who idolizes that one other guitar player and he sounds just like him rusty yep. cooley um <clears throat> uh, <laughs> and is it rusty cooley i want to say it's rusty cooley but i'm i'm, I'm probably getting that wrong um anyway yeah uh, it's rusty cooley and when you you thought of the right guitar player when you think about it and you like kind of like look at the situation you go yeah you're really good at that but can you do this and a lot of times they can't now he i'll say this he could probably play some other stuff because because the the person he emulates obviously uh is like on another level but that being said he's not going to excel he's not gonna be like hey watch me do clapton for 20 minutes or you know um where somebody like um greg cock I think it's a good example of somebody who can like emulate other people's styles and do a little bit of everything that other people can do. Ed Ed Cock or Greg Greg Cock can do. I can't keep saying Ed yeah. Cock because I'm stuck in New York City lately. <clears throat> Greg Cock can play um, literally like he can play whatever like he wants. A, um, <laughs> yeah, like he's a, a jazz um, a musician that played the boardwalk in Jersey. In 1942, I mean, and then and then he could turn around and be um, Eric Clapton yeah. in Cream, and then he could turn around and be the guys that every every one of the guitar players who ever went through Leonard's Yeah, Gary. he's so di- <laughs> he's so dynamic, um, and that's that's part of how you get dynamic is you don't limit yourself to like, hey, I'm only going to play this genre. Now, at the same time, I've heard people make some very careful observations about how the best best players at the instruments are usually genre players and that's true um but how do you think that's true because like if you're a genre player nobody's going to ask you to play the other genre right i mean you don't call david gilmore and say i need a real heavy metal riff here yeah could you could you play something really heavy he's a new guitar player they want to hire david gilmore i mean (laughs) that doesn't happen (laughs) yeah yeah they didn't hire to come play for kids right right exactly (laughs) Hey Dave, I think it'd be really cool if you joined Slayer. <laughs> Iron, Iron Maiden's like, oh, you know what? We, yeah. we need another guy. Let's get Iron. Let's get Dave. No, let's Gilmore get Taylor Swift. <laughs> yeah. Do you remember? Do you remember happen. when De- Def Leppard and Taylor Swift got together and did that thing on uh, CMT or whatever? Oh, oh yes, Crossroads. Yeah, thing. I'm so glad that was yeah, over. That was- God awful. Did you hear about that? Did, speaking of awful performances, did you hear about that awful performance that Puddle Mud did of a Nirvana song? Um, I have not actually watched it, but I've heard it was I terrible. I still haven't really gotten over the fact that uh, Nirvana got inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and that uh, Annie Clark filled uh, Kurt Cobain's shoes, which that just seems like so paradoxical to me. Uh, yeah. Berkeley, 
college dropout, like highly skilled, um, David Byrne devotee doing Nirvana. Like, how did that happen? Like, who who thought I, that was a good idea? <laughs> all right, I'm gonna <clears throat> I'm gonna come to Annie's rescue here, and I'm gonna say this. I think I hear Kurt Cobain in Annie's music, and I and honestly, I definitely hear, ang- I love I definitely hear angst. I don't know that I hear yeah. Kurt. I hear the angst, but I don't know that I necessarily hear Kurt. And I think that's where it is. I mean, Kurt. Kurt was was definitely. It depends on it depends on how you relate to that music, I suppose. You got to remember that's yeah. like the music of my generation. I grew up in it, and yeah, and I, I did. and it's like I'm not a big fan of it. I mean, obviously, like I've talked about my distaste with with I like all the members of the band. I just di- didn't like Kurt Cobain, um, and I actually liked some of their music. I just don't like much of it, um, and. Right. I, I kind of sit and I think about it and I'm like, well, I mean, I get it. Like they wanted to get somebody who was kind of counterculture. Like that was kind of what they're mm-hmm. going with. And I almost think it was a big F you to Courtney Love. Like in the sense that she's the polar opposite of Courtney Love. In that, <laughs> you know, she has not attached herself to some other rock star to like get success. And she did it all by herself. And it's kind of yeah. like, I kind of feel like there's this undertone of, well, do you want to sue us for rights to the records? Then like, here, we've got this for you. Well, I think, uh, I think that, that that's exactly why they picked Annie, because she is, she is, whether, whether we want to agree or disagree with what Kurt did, she is what Kurt wanted to be, at least, which was not really associated. Part yeah, of, she part was able to disassociate for- with her music, right? She is that Kurt was Kurt hated what they'd become on a level. Yeah, from what I yeah, understand, I think he had a lot of um, uh, angst about the fact that they were suddenly this corporate monster, and all he wanted to be was a garage. Op- I think there that's definitely part of the thing. I also think that he probably didn't necessarily understand how those other bands operated. Because even like the Misfits in their grassroots thing, like they were they were business oriented, like they had the logo, they were pressing records, they were doing anything they could do, big borrow and steal and make records. Like it was a whole thing that I, I mean, I see kind of like their Nirvana is like this extension of that era of music. And I kind of laugh because I'm like, well, what did you think was going to happen? I mean, you idolize yeah. people like the me puppets, man, like. They, uh, you can't yeah. sit and pretend like they were rebelling against corporate rock. I think the real issue with Kurt Cobain is it's very difficult to separate the individual with his with the abuse that had happened to him when he was younger and his drug and his drug yeah. use. And, and so he, you know, he, I think no matter what what was going on in Kurt's life, he would have found the negative side of it and been like, "This is stupid and horrible." And I think he was just suicidal. I honestly think that he was just a guy that was like very. He was down on himself. He, 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 had, he had no positivity yeah. in his life whatsoever, and he was never going to see it when it was there. It's sad. It's now, sad. Speaking of the old school punk, after last week when we were talking about Veruca Assault, didn't we yeah, mention Veruca Assault, Assault yeah. last week? I, so I sat down and listened to Veruca Assault first record, Veruca Assault's first record again, and I so remember why I love that band. I was. I was just jamming I never away. I really thought it was and, like punk rock, though, because I was I, like, 
I always just no, they were they, they were just two girls having like a fun alternative with rock band. But I didn't think like because yeah. I never got the punk fight from it. Like when you say punk music, I, I think exactly. like Black Flag and stuff like that. You know, wow, like yeah. <laughs> Henry Rollins and like uh, uh, the Misfits. When I, when I think well, remember, I, I grew up in the 70s. The punk was just anything that had to do with screw arena rock. Well, it, it was. Uh, so that's another thing that, that Annie Clark. So in, the, in talking about the Annie Clark thing, she she talked about that. Um, they caught her at some festival, some some YouTube channel. and They asked her about performing as Kurt Cobain and how that how that all came together. And uh, she basically said, like, well, there people called me and she said, yeah, sure, I do it. And then she's like, I guess they were really thrilled because of my connection with the LGBTQ community. And like somehow Nirvana had some sort of connection with that culture as well. And I'm like, I didn't, I never really saw that. In fact, I, I always thought like Kurt would have been the guy that was actually kind of mean to those people. No, no, that it's exactly the yeah. opposite. But anyway, uh, that's, I, I, I don't think any, most of the people of that era were probably exactly the opposite of that. I mean, there were a lot of people that at yeah. the time that were thinking that uh, till he obviously started shacking up with uh, Courtney Love. But a lot of people were thinking that uh, uh, what's his face, uh, Billy Corgan was gay. Like that was going yeah, back yeah. and forth for a long time um, in yeah. some of the magazines and, and stuff. But obviously, oh it's been, yeah, it's still been rumored that uh, David Grohl. Yeah, I, I doubt that seriously, but. Um, he's Mr. Rock and Roll today. Like as far as I, I don't really care. I, I, this never been never really been an issue for me. Uh -huh. I think back about it, like the first time I saw Freddie a picture of Freddie Mercury. Like I knew their music before I actually saw a picture of him. Maybe I'd seen a picture of him like in the eighties, like when I was a kid, and I just never really associated mm -hmm. it. But I saw a picture of him. I go, that guy's gay. Like it just didn't make any, make any difference to me. I still love the music. I just like that guy's gay. Like no big deal. Oh yeah, like, whatever. In the seventies, you know, it, it was such a I always wonder because I, I didn't grow up in a place in a location where it mattered. You yeah. Know what I mean? uh, so, so it never really crossed my mind to care. Uh, it was like um, when I grew up listening to you know um, to, uh, Elton John and uh, um, Freddie Mercury and those guys, and it's like you know, does anybody? And then somebody said, you, you know, when I when I was older, did you know they were gay, and I was like. Uh, no, <laughs> I didn't really care. Yeah. It's like even then you didn't really care. You're like, so what? Like, I was well, what's your point? So, are you afraid that their music is going to do something to you or something? I don't understand. This, what this podcast has taken an oddly political uh, slam. I just yeah. I get frustrated, man, because I hear this stuff all the time, and I'm like, just stop. I got family members on both sides of the both sides of the fence who are, you know victims of of this kind of shenanigans and uh i have to remind myself constantly like i like to think that i'm not i'm not really involved in these debates i'm not really involved in these debates but i am we all are and so we need to be better human beings and try to take care of one another especially with something like covid19 going on. yeah so, with that i have been david i've been jim and tonight we've been the practical guitarists